Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. In 1880, a French company began the world's greatest terraforming project to date. They were to attempt nothing less than connecting the world's two great oceans. After four decades' work, hundreds of millions of dollars in expense, and 30,000 lives lost, The Panama Canal became one of the world's most valued assets. By cutting the route by sea from California to Europe in half and New York to Japan by 15%, the canal became an invaluable economic asset, a strategic tool during World War II and a political hotpoint that would not resolve itself until the end of the century. And it was all made possible by a single water dam the largest in the world in its time, located by the small Panamanian town of Gatun. In the century that's passed since the Panama Canal's completion in 1913, advancements in hydroelectric technologies have allowed for the building of massive, imposing water dams that end up becoming the key features of entire geographical areas. We all know of the Hoover Dam, which, past its pure function, came to represent the power of American grit and ingenuity in the Depression era. It helped shape the southwest United States, mitigating floodwaters from Colorado into Arizona and California, and acts as a literal state boundary between Arizona and Nevada. The world's largest dam, the Kariba Dam in Zimbabwe, creates an artificial lake with 185 billion cubic meters of water capacity. It's hard to imagine 185 billion cubic meters of anything, so to give you a sense of what that means, consider this. The Kariba was built to that scale, so it would be able to stave off a 1 in 10,000 year biblical flooding event. It's more than four times the volume of the annual drinking water needed to sustain the entire world's population. The Gatun Dam is not special for its size or technical capability, though in its time it surely was all that, and in its century-plus-long history, it's tended not to garner too much attention, which, when we're talking about a dam, is quite a good thing. According to those measures alone, you might not otherwise guess that the Gatun Dam was created under only the most controversial of circumstances. It became a scapegoat for powerful government officials to push political agendas, and the outlandish stories made up about its building shaped the very design of the structure itself. Of course, you'd gather nothing of this just by looking at the thing itself. More than anything, the Gatun case study demonstrates how dams affect so many aspects of our lives, 
providing great economic prosperity at the cost of disturbing wildlife, displacing native towns and villages, but ultimately providing renewable power and water to others, mitigating risk from natural disasters, but introducing the potential for man-made disasters. It is why the story you are about to hear will cover an entire century's time and why we're dedicating two episodes to the subject. By the end of it all, I hope you'll understand what I mean when I say a dam is not just a dam. And while the shovels dig, we'll turn to the place where all those dirt trains were going, Gatun. We're standing on the top of the dam, looking south toward Gatun Lake. In the distance, you saw the guide pier along which eastbound ships tie up before they are to enter the first of the three Gatun locks, through which the ships are lowered 85 feet to the level of the Atlantic. The camera swings in slow panorama, and on the hill in the distance, the administration buildings come into view. It was in these buildings that all the orders were formulated for the building of the Great Gatun Dam and Locks. In 1876, the Geographical Society of Paris formed a committee to explore the Isthmus of Panama, a thin stretch of land 70 kilometers wide, connecting Central and South America, through which the French were planning to construct an interoceanic canal, connecting the Atlantic to the Pacific. In order to better understand the geographical region, they sent Lucien Napoleon Bonaparte Wise, an engineer, navy captain and grandson to the Napoleon dynasty, on mission to the region. The man Wise reported to was Ferdinand de Lesseps of Versailles, the diplomat in charge of the Panama Canal project who'd landed the job after having successfully headed the effort to build the Suez Canal in Egypt a decade earlier. De Lesseps rejected all but one of Wise's many design proposals. His reasoning wasn't totally nonsensical. His means were quite suspect though, and his decision would later prove fatal. The problem was that, in deciding how to cut through the isthmus, De Lesseps' decision-making was largely political, not technical. All of his rejections centered around one core tenant of Wise's proposals, that they required a system of locks and dams which would allow for the canal through Panama to be built above sea level. De Lesseps had the non-elevated Suez Canal in mind and thus organized a congress to be held on May 15, 1879, in Paris, where the matter of the canal through Panama would be presented and reviewed. In reality, De Lesseps' invitation was more of a marketing ploy. He'd already made his final decision on the location and means of construction and was now looking for funding, not critics. While De Lesseps' decision to build at sea level did have wide support, many engineers and other concerned parties at the Congress expressed their preference for Wise's original proposal of an elevated canal supported by a system of locks and dams. Most notable among the opposition party was Adolphe Godin de Lepinay, France's foremost roads and bridges engineer of his time, and the only man present with construction experience in Central America. De Lepinay vehemently argued against De Lesseps' plan, adding that his own plan would include a dam on either side of the inlet, one placed along the Rio Grande at the Pacific end, and the other on the Chagres River, connecting the Atlantic beside the small Panamanian town of Gatun 
on the shore of Limon Bay. Growing tired of those who doubted him, Ferdinand de Lesseps stood up at the Congress and, according to an account from the Panama Canal Authority, spoke spontaneously, in simple, direct language, and with great conviction, if not abundant knowledge, making everything sound right and reasonable. There was no question that a sea-level canal was the correct type of canal to build, and no question at all that Panama was the best and only place to build it. Any problems, and of course there would be some, would resolve themselves as they had at Suez. The French committee voted 74 to 8 in favor of de Lesseps' plan. Of the 74 yay votes, only one was cast by an engineer who'd been to Central America before. In celebration, de Lesseps organized an opening ceremony at the Isthmus set to New Year's Day, 1880. On arrival, the Pacific tide had receded such that the boat full of French bourgeoisie couldn't make landfall. Improvising, de Lesseps filled an empty case of champagne with dirt and had his daughter symbolically strike it with a pickaxe. In retrospect, this was perhaps an omen for what was to come. Of course, with empty cases of champagne just lying around, it's safe to assume the minds of those who were celebrating weren't with engineering at this time. <laughs> Fast forward seven years. To 1887. As a result of disease, landslides and otherwise poor working conditions, the French had lost some 20,000 workers, mostly non-French people of color, to the Panama Canal effort, along with 400 million dollars, the equivalent of around 10 billion dollars today, and not a whole lot of progress to show for it. It was becoming increasingly clear to all parties involved that the sea-level plan would not work. De Lesseps was finally forced to adopt the Wise and De Lepinez locks and dams system he had so confidently rejected. But it was already too late. Funding dried up and public confidence in De Lesseps himself plummeted. the excitement he had drummed up only a few years earlier would not sustain him through the evident failures of the Isthmus project under his leadership. Work on the canal petered out and officially ceased on May 15, 1889. Panama was left with huge, gaping holes 
in what once was their beautiful countryside and received not an inch of canal in return. Shortly thereafter, Ferdinand de Lesseps was charged with crimes of corruption, maladministration, fraud and bribery. By now, the aging diplomat was gradually losing his mental faculties and spent the entirety of his jail term hospitalized until his death at age 89 on December 7, 1894. A few moments ago, we said that the government used 101 shovels. Some of them were left by the French, who, under de Lesseps, builder of the Suez Canal, first started work back in 1882. These, however, are good old American shovels. They are working here just past the sheer face of Culebra at the lowest point of the cut, the very real bottom of the Panama Canal. When the United States took the Panama Canal Zone for themselves in 1903, they made their presence known. Whereas the French were essentially building a canal to be owned and operated by its home nation of Colombia, the Americans wanted to build a canal for themselves. So they encouraged the Panamanian effort to separate from Colombia and struck a deal with the Panamanians for full control of the region. This created quite a challenge. Because the canal would stretch the width of the budding nation, in order to travel from the south to the north of Panama during most of the 20th century, you'd first have to go through an unincorporated American territory, as the legal term has it. It's like if you allowed someone to rent out the middle third of your living room. Along the way, the Americans also adopted the weight of the canal project's controversy from the French. You would think that they would have learned from the lessons of their failed predecessors. But alas, the project was once again marred from the beginning over whether to be built elevated or at sea level. Any success the Americans had over the French ultimately traces back to one man, John F. Stevens, chief engineer of the Great Northern Railway appointed to head the Panama project by none other than President Theodore Roosevelt himself. Stevens's approach to the problem was markedly new. The digging, he said, is the least thing of all. He focused on building houses, recreation areas, and other facilities for workers, a rail system for the disposal of digging waste, and ridding the plague of yellow fever that wrought the French encampments. In fact, the area never saw more prosperity than in these years. Fresh food and healthcare were provided for all workers who earned $87 per month in salary. For reference, an unskilled worker on a farm within the United States in that same time period would have made only $28 per month. Foremost among it all, Stevens began an aggressive lobbying campaign to build the canal elevated atop an infrastructure of flocks and dams. Stevens lobbied with the US Congress, explaining in detail why a sea-level design necessarily invited major flooding. 
he helped draft a major speech for Senator Philander Knox, which centered around the issue of the Gatun Dam, to argue that the elevated design would create faster route through the channel, alleviating flooding dangers, and could be finished faster. The Senate voted for the elevated canal with a margin of just five votes. The House voted to confirm the plan. Even after the course was set, though, a coalition within the U.S. Congress remained vehemently against the idea of an elevated design. At the core of this argument was the issue of the dam at Gatun. It's difficult to say whether the dam truly was of concern to politicians or whether it was merely a scapegoat for pushing greater agendas in the region. Some politicians maintained the false notion that the rock bed near Gatun is pervious and that building a dam there will end up in a disaster. They were quite vociferous about the subject and an investigation into the matter was conducted to try and appease them. The engineers found no issue. The foundation was rock solid. Why dwell on it, I hear you ask? Well then, it is worth taking a moment now to discuss how exactly dams are built in the first place and all will become clear. This bridge-like structure is one of the two emergency locks. Should anything go wrong with the regular lock gates, one of these could be swung across the lock in question and then it would drop big steel plates to form a supplementary gate. And here is one of the pair of upper locks. Look at the size of it. A thousand feet long, 110 feet wide, and 83 feet deep. Two million yards of concrete were used in the Gatun end of the canal, and the work took from 1906 to 1911. Since ancient times, humans have harnessed water as more than just pure sustenance. In rural villages and farms, across Egypt and Rome, Greece and China, mills were placed along streams to capture the power of running water. Hydroelectric technology today may be mechanized, but it's fundamentally rooted in what has been with us since the early eras of written history. The primary function of a dam, the thing that makes it a dam and not just a wall, is to split a single body of water into two distinct bodies of different heights. It's why in many cases, such as in the Panama Canal, Part of the job of building a dam involves creating an artificial lake or reservoir at higher altitude than its surrounding environment. Why must this be so? Because it grants us many powers. I'll offer you an analogy. Picture two boulders, one at the top of a hill, one at the bottom. What can we say about these two rocks? You might think, well, nothing, they're just a couple of dumb rocks. However, if you were to stand at the foot of the hill, you might feel differently about these boulders. One of them, in particular, would seem to you distinctively different than the other. How? Well, one of these boulders, the one at the top of the hill, is liable to roll down and smush you to death. These may be two dumb rocks, but one of them has a unique property. An energy, you might say, so long as it remains precariously up on top of that hill. In physics, what we're talking about here is the phenomenon of kinetic versus potential energy. In short, kinetic energy is the energy of motion, say a boulder rolling down a hill, and potential energy is exactly what it sounds like, stored energy. 
say, a boulder at the top of a hill, waiting to roll down. The same applies to two distinct bodies of water of different heights on either side of a dam. The elevated water, we'll call that the backside of the dam, is a sitting, pent-up energy source waiting to be unleashed. Dams are built with specific features to allow for the harnessing of this power. First, we have the floodgates which, when lowered, allow the force of gravity to act on the water, sending it rushing down from high to low. Next, we have turbines. You can think of these as the mechanical equivalent of the watermill, wheels that spin as the water rushes through. That turbine will connect to a generator which converts the energy into electricity. From there, the electricity can be distributed outward to nearby populations, therefore lighting up towns and cities just from the power of water. Hydroelectricity is not only a clean source of power, but a renewable one. Because of the natural water cycle, from evaporation to clouds to rain and back again, basically there's no worry that the water brought from high to low will ever run out. However, climate change and change in precipitation patterns around the world is beginning to take its toll on this form of energy manufacturing and new damming projects had to be redesigned or even cancelled altogether. Still, hydroelectricity worldwide produces some 4 million gigawatt hours every year. For a scale, one single gigawatt of electricity is equivalent to the shared power of 100 million LED light bulbs. But a dam's significance is not limited solely to power production. That stored water source doubles as a lasting supply of fresh water for neighboring populations and in some cases is pumped over long stretches of land to towns and cities themselves not located along a water source. The reservoir also works towards flood prevention by absorbing incoming floodwaters from upstream of a dam, holding it for a period of time, then letting it flow once the bad weather passes over a more gradual time period rather than all at once. So with all the time and energy it takes us to build hulking physical structures, divert rivers and reorganize our earth, we get renewable benefit from a natural resource in return. This looks like a desert stream in early spring, but it's really the first water ever to enter the Panama Canal proper, finding its way into it from the Chagres River. The Chagres Basin is now filled by Gatun Lake, formed by the man-made low-lying Gatun Dam at the Atlantic end of the canal. The Gatun Dam is what's known as an earthen dam. It is located in the valley of the Chagres River, in between hills which provide a natural two-kilometer wide gap within which the dam is centered. Altogether, it creates the Gatun Lake, an artificially created body of water that takes ships 33 kilometers along their journey on the Panama Canal.
Colonel George Gothels, who succeeded John Stevens in running the project, found a solution to a big, big problem during construction. Not only did an elevated canal design create less debris overall, but in order to shore up their Gatun Dam structure, the American engineers had trains carry the leftover stone from other digging sites along the canal, in particular from the notoriously treacherous stony Colebra Cut, to be packed in along either side of the dam. As you might have guessed, the ingenuity and thoroughness with which those engineers designed the Gatun Dam did not do much to silence its political opponents. The decision to build it as an earthen dam, for one, was met with major blowback and forced Gothels, once again, to do unnecessarily extensive checks to assure his detractors that it possesses ample strength in his own words, to uphold the structure that will be placed upon it. If you'd been there just after the turn of the century, you would have seen everything running smoothly. The Colebra cut was being dug out in a safer and more efficient manner than in previous years, the dam site at Gatun was being prepared, and the workers were generally content. However, this wasn't the narrative that was being translated back home. Political coalitions opposed to the handling of the canal project began using the power of the U.S. radio and tabloid newspaper industries to spread damaging rumors about Gothels and his plans. For whatever reason, the opposition force honed in on the dam at Gatun as a source of particular controversy. For every minute and a half during the peak of activity in Culebra, a train loaded with dirt rumbled on its way to Gatun Dam and Locks. And despite that, it was almost impossible to keep enough empty cars on hand to tax the capacity of the 101 steam shovels used. We don't want to bore you with figures, but in passing we might mention that the government used over 300 locomotives and over 4,000 cars of rolling stock in this work. My personal favorite of all the Gatun Dam controversies occurred in November 1908 when a New Orleans newspaper received a dispatch that the entire Gatun Dam had given way. The news made national headlines. Gothels did try to calm the media storm by lending a press quote. As reported in the San Francisco call, Lieutenant Colonel Gothels, chief engineer of the Panama Canal, said today that the damage done to the Gatun Dam was of small consequence. He stated the rock pile on the south toe of the dam had been raised to 50 feet above the sea level, resulting in heavy pressure on the clay foundation. The heavy rains and the great weight of the superstructure had disturbed the equilibrium, causing a falling in of the top of the rock pile. Slips of this kind, he said, are not infrequent. The good word of the engineer heading the project was not enough. Soon, President Roosevelt sent no less than then-president-elect William Taft on the long, seafaring trip down to Gatun to review the matter. Perhaps it would have been helpful to the American people at the time to know, in 1908, the Gatun Dam didn't yet exist.
all of the nonsense surrounding the issue of the Gatun Dam did end up having an effect on the final design. In fact, the structure is only as large as it is today for reasons that have less to do with engineering and more to do with appeasing politicians. Shortly after the national media craze over the fallen stone, John F. Stevens told the New York Times that the dam is being built actually much wider and higher than safety requires, but merely as a concession to prejudice. If the canal were being built by private interests, a much less massive structure would have been considered entirely secure. Colonel Gothels, in a speech to the National Geographic Society three years later, reiterated the idea, explaining that the Gatun Dam was only made so imposingly large so that the layman without engineering knowledge would recognize its stability. In other words, Stevens and Gothels literally made the dam larger than it needed to be so that even a mindless politician, upon seeing it, must conclude that it appears secure. Ultimately, through sheer force of will and by using the innovative locks and dams design, the American unit managed to complete construction on the dam located at Gatun and the Panama Canal along with it in 1914 a whole three and a half decades after the project first began. As demonstrated by all the failed efforts to build a sea-level canal through the isthmus, it's safe to say that the Panama Canal today would not exist if not for the Gatun Dam. And among the many great benefits it has allowed the Western world, perhaps the greatest accomplishment of all is that for all the chaos and ridiculousness it seemed to incite in those decades surrounding its construction, the Gatun Dam is mostly forgotten about today. For over a century now, it has rarely, if ever, made any news. And for that, we can all take a deep sigh of relief. There's the Panama Canal from the underside, one of the greatest pieces of man-made construction ever known. First talked of in 1825, when Henry Clay appointed a committee to look into the idea, and through which the first ship passed on August 3, 1914, and opened officially on August 15th the same year. The Panama Canal, a monument to Colonel Gettles, General Gorgas, and the American people. next episode of Waterline, things are going to get quite gloomy. We will be delving into what happens when a dam breaks. You'll hear of the great tragedy that can result from structural failures, but also the great benefit that can come when projects like these go right. Because in the end, a dam is not just a dam. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production. Produced by PI Media.